You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. I don't know about you, um, does anybody else, this may just be a preacher thing, does anybody else have uh, either Bible story-isms or Bible verse-isms that drive you nuts because people do them wrong? Is that anybody else? Like one of mine, how many of you have ever heard that one of the actions on, the, on the, uh, the Day of Atonement, the day that the high priest gives the sacrifice of the Lamb and goes into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the Lamb and, and puts it on the mercy seat. You guys know I'm talking about Old Testament passage. How many of you have heard uh, that you know, he wears bells on his, on his robe and they tie a rope around his ankle as he goes into there so that they can hear him and if he dies in there, they have a means to pull him out. How many of, anybody ever, ever heard that? Okay. That's not in the Bible. Anywhere. No, it shows up in the 12th century. Uh, some writer was talking about how it basically, how would they do? It's not, it's not a Bible. It just drives me nuts because it's just, it shows up in all, I mean, in all, like John MacArthur had a book that it, it was a big section on it that was in there. I was going, dude, you're like, it's not there. It drives me nuts, right? Um, and it may just be because I'm a pastor in that, in that sense, right? Uh, it's one of those things like, I can do all things through a Bible verse taken out of context, <laughs> right? Uh, and one of those is one that pops up all the time, all the time. And it's, it, uh, it's especially, I find it's especially prominent with worship leaders. It shows up in worship services. Uh, and it's, you know, it's especially when the music gets real calm and, you know, they dim the lights, right, and everything like that. And then this phrase comes out. It says, you know, the Bible says that where two or more are gathered in my name, there he is in the midst of us, right? And it's this worshipful, like, we're gathered together, and so Jesus is there. Does anybody know why that might be, a, that, why, why that is a verse taken out of context? It's about discipline, right? This is saying God is there to judge the hearts of people. That's what that passage is saying. It has nothing to do about the fact that we're gathering together to sing. And like Jesus is like kumbaya and with us kind of a thing. Well, we're going to be looking at that passage of Scripture today um, because it pertains to the nature of when we ask the question, why do we believe in church membership, right? Uh, I, a number of years ago when I was planting a church in South Louisiana, I had a guy that was uh, a part of my kind of leadership team at the time. At that time in my life, I didn't have a good grasp of eldership. I just had this group of guys that were kind of the pastor sounding board for me. And we were just saying, okay, we're trying to structure this new church that we were planting. We said, we want to do it biblically. How do we do that? And one of the things that he did was he threw this question out there. He said, church membership. Every church I've ever been at had membership, right? Uh, you know, the church I grew up in uh, had 700 and something members, and on a good Sunday, we had 110 people in attendance. And so it was one of those things like, what in the world does church membership mean? And so he asked the question, he said, how do we, church, uh, how do we prove uh, or uh, uh, give evidence for uh, the concept of local church membership? In other words, my name on a list at a church biblically. Now, obviously, we can, make the, we can make the argument all day long for the, you know, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus, right? Like all the redeemed of all the ages. Every, you know, we talk about our brothers and sisters of Christ on the other side of the world, our relationship that we have with all these people. How do we make the argument that says this body, this group, this place? And it wasn't until uh, it took 
uh, about a year and a half of just pondering that question because we were just kind of like, I don't know, it feels right, right? But that's to, to say of something theological, well, it feels right is generally not, a, that's usually not a good way to make theological um, statements. And uh, I was reading an article by a, a pastor uh, that was, they were doing a pro and con on the nature of um, membership around the issue of baptism. And they, it was a Baptist church that was having this argument, and they were asking the question, does somebody who uh, has not had what we would call believer's baptism, in other words, that they came to faith in Jesus uh, of their own free will at some point in time in their life as a kid, teenager, or young adult, when they had the mental capacity to say, I'm a sinner and need a Savior. And so they came to faith in Jesus and then were baptized. That's the concept of believer's baptism versus what we would call infant baptism, which is practiced by a lot of church groups through the ages uh, that have said, you know what, if somebody is born, you know, parents have a child and they bring that child in and that child can be baptized. There's theological reasons why they do that. Uh, but it's long before that child ever makes a decision themselves to follow Jesus. And so, but they would still classify that individual as being baptized. And so they were asking the question, uh, should we allow people to become members of our church who have not had believers baptism uh, but have been baptized uh, as infants and feel that that was themselves feel that that was good and important. And as he was messing that out, he just went to the heart of the question of membership as a whole of saying, well, what is the point of membership? Should we even worry about it, right? Should we just focus on sharing the gospel and making disciples and teaching people God's word and practicing prayer and practicing hospitality and all the things that the church does? Should we even worry about membership? And this is the passage uh, that he pointed at where he made the argument uh, for the first time that I think I'd ever seen of saying that church membership is a biblical concept um, but if you've been a part of other churches outside of this, I can guarantee uh, there's not very, very few that are in this room that have been a part of our church where voting was a part of membership. It is something that we occasionally do, but it's not a big thing. But for most people within church life, to be a member means you get to vote, right? You get to pick the color of the carpet or the, the change of the lighting or the budget or hiring the new pastor or whatever. Um, and that is the fundamental nature of membership. But this passage points us to a different fundamental nature of what it means to be a member of the church. And this is what it says. In uh, Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15, we're going to go all the way to verse 20. Matthew chapter 18, starting verse 15. <clears throat> it says this. If your brother sins, some translations might say, if your brother sins against you, that there's a direction to that sin. But in the, in the Greek, it literally just says, if your brother sins, if you see your brother sinning, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, Take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three, every witness, uh, sorry, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, 
Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, In old southern traditions of this passage, this is referred to as churchin'. You church somebody. Uh, if, they, if they're caught in an affair, if they're caught embezzling funds, uh, this kind of thing where they're literally their membership, their, fellow, their, their right to fellowship within the body is removed out. And it is such a strange thing to us in our present day world, in our present day culture to think uh, that the, the nature of the way church works, society works and pushes for inclusion, right? We want, to, we want everyone to feel comfortable. We want everyone to feel welcome. We want everyone to feel accepted and to bring in. And yet this passage of Scripture very clearly teaches that there is a point of which there is a pushing out. In fact, we see this play out uh, over the course of time in 1 Corinthians uh, for in First Corinthians, uh, as Paul is writing to that church in Corinth uh, that is just so, so messed up, just so many challenges, he talks about a certain individual in their church that they are playing the game of inclusion. We don't want to make this guy feel bad. We don't want to push him out. And he says, here's the guy that's sinning in such a way that the rest of the world looks at him and says, that's gross, Right? And you are saying, no, 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 but Jesus, and we're holding him in and everything like that. And he makes this hard statement. He says, hand him over to Satan that his body may be destroyed, but his soul saved. I mean, that's a harsh, harsh kind of statement. And when we read these kind of passages into our present day world, they go, see, look, that the church is just, it's not inclusive. It's not accepting. It's not truly loving. But is that actually what this passage is teaching us about? Well, there's a process that is laid out here. And ultimately, this process that is laid out here is the truth of discipleship. When we use terms, again, to describe ourselves, right? We use terms like Christian, right? We, you know, we got Christian cars and, I mean, Christian bumper stickers and Christian movies and Christian music and Christian t-shirts and Christian conferences and Christian bookstores and everything's Christian, right? That's used two times in the New Testament. Both times it was used in, uh, in a derogatory term that was used by outsiders to describe these followers of the way. It means little Christs, right? And so the church was like, Yes and amen. I'm cool with that. You can call me. Uh, that's my kind of my goal, right? I want to be a little Christ. And so they embraced it, but it was used by outsiders to describe the Christians two times. Believers, the believers, uh, believers in Jesus, the, the believers of God, that, that is used a little bit more. It's used 19 times in the New Testament. Follower, used 27 times in the New Testament. But the word methetes, disciple, it's used 273 times in the New Testament. The FBI calls this a clue. It's a, it, the word means a learning apprentice. It is thought accompanied by endeavor. 
See, to be a Christian doesn't just mean that we know stuff. Christian is not a game of biblical trivial pursuit that we just want to have more information for the sake of being able to say, I know the most stuff, right? Most people in the world uh, want to die with the most stuff. And there's a lot of Christians that want to die knowing the most stuff. And that's not the goal. The goal is to know and then to do what you know. That's the picture of discipleship. It is belief and repentance, Repentance is not just stopping doing something. It's stopping one thing and turning and starting something different. And every time we believe the truth of the gospel, every time we believe the things that God teaches us, it confronts what we were believing and what we did was based on what we believe. So when it confronts us in that way, we stop acting on this thing and we turn to the truth of God and we begin to live according to the way that he calls us to. That's actually what faith is. Faith is not just this blind walking through you know, life. It's belief and repentance. It is uh, accepting what God tells us through his word, through the Holy Spirit, and responding to that accordingly. That's what it means to walk by faith. And what that looks like is discipline. We don't normally think of discipleship as discipline, but every time we believed something wrong, and either God's Word or the preaching of God's Word or the teaching of God's Word or the conviction of the Holy Spirit changes us and corrects us from this wrong belief to right belief and changes us to right living, that's actually discipline. It's the same thing that we do with children, right? Children are not by nature disciplined individuals. They are by nature wild monkeys, right? That's, what, that's how children operate. And so it takes parents being disciplined with them to say, no, don't touch that. No, don't do that. And then instead of doing this, not doing this, why don't you do this? Why don't you say this? Why don't you act this way? It is this constant correcting that we do as parents. And we understand that in context of discipline, right? We are discipling our children by disciplining our children. And the Bible tells us very clearly that God disciplines those he loves. And what does it mean by the discipline? It's not just him punishing, it's him correcting, it's him nurturing, it's him pointing us back to the direction that we ought to go. So discipline is a biblical concept that is fundamentally rooted into who we are as followers of Jesus. We cannot be followers of Jesus if we are not being disciplined by our Heavenly Father and living out that discipline through belief and repentance or walking by faith, right? Does that make sense? And this is what this passage of Scripture means. The, the steps are basically one, three, all. The first one is one. If your brother Sins, or if your brother sins against you directionally, either, either way, whether it's you seeing this uh, fellow uh, follower of Jesus, professing believer, this other disciple, whether you see them sinning in some way, you see an error in their attitude, you see an error in their action, you see an error in their belief, uh, or you see that happen against you, that they have sinned in some way against you, the action that is to take place is to go and show them, teach them, instruct them, give them truth, show them his fault in private. 
And if he listens to you, then you've won your brother. It's a profound thing that Jesus uses here um, because Jesus says, if your brother sins. Uh, now, we could just think, well, I mean, we're in church life, right? Like uh, in the deep south and in, in Southern Baptist world, I was always Brother Chris, right? I moved up here and everybody now calls me Pastor Chris, right? But this, this idea of, you know, Sister Kimberly and, you know, Brother Derek and, and this, this uh, the familial terms that we use around the nature of Christianity, we kind of use it as a colloquialism, uh, but Jesus didn't use it like that. Jesus meant it literally. When Jesus talked about the family, when he said, these are my brothers and sisters, he was talking on the highest level, the highest order that their society had for relationships. You need to understand that in the context of the world in which Jesus lived, your sibling relationships were actually relationally higher than every other relationship you had, even including your spouse. Because this was your family. You walked with them. You were born with them. In a world in which they were assigned marriages, they began to learn to love each other, but there wasn't this closeness of bond. It was a joy if it did come out, but family was really where it was at. And there's all kinds of examples that uh, help us see that throughout the, uh, throughout the scriptures and then even throughout extra, or extra biblical texts that describe some of the nature of this. But this is why it's so profound when Jesus talks about us in terms of family. In terms of brothers, it's him saying, look at this individual who's not just some random individual. They're not somebody that's just haphazardly thrown into your life by chance. This is somebody that is relationally connected to you by blood in the same way that you exist. Their blood is your blood. It's this view of him saying they were transformed and bought by God. When Jesus prayed, our Father who's in heaven, it was a radical prayer. Nobody in, no, none of the Jewish community did that. That wasn't, that wasn't something that you, you did. And so Jesus was teaching something that was profoundly different. He was pointing us in a direction, not just towards our heavenly Father, but deeply, deeply connected to each other. And so he says, if your brother sins, go and, show him his, uh, go and show him his fault. And here's the key, in private, right? When it comes to correction, this is a, a basic parenting principle, right? It is always best to praise in public and discipline in private, right? Because the reality is if you discipline in public... Oftentimes the, the shame and the burden and the, the, uh, um, uh, the weirdness of it distracts from what you're actually trying to accomplish. And so he says, go to them and pull them aside and say, hey, I don't know if you know this, but this is wrong. Now, this is such a weird thing in our world today because we just simply don't do this, right? Uh, th this is almost considered unloving. What are you doing stepping into my life? What right do you have? To, there's all kind of Facebook posts about that kind of thing. Of, you know, people just need to mind their own business and all this kind of stuff. And going, no, no, no. This is us actually really loving each other. Stepping into each other's lives and saying, I've seen some things that deeply concern me. Either what you said to me hurt 
or, or what you said to me was wrong, or what you said to me literally was sin, and what you did to me was sin, and stepping into that in reconciliation and forgiveness. But in general, as you're walking along with this, uh, this individual, to, when you see things that you're going like, man, that, whatever that is, that raises the hairs on the back of my head. I recently was talking to some pastor friends of mine that are going through this issue with a, uh, with a guy, and they were blown away by it. It's just uh, some uh, sexual sin stuff just blew up in this guy's life, and it just caught him completely off guard. And yet when we were talking about it, I had met this individual, and I was like, man, there were just, there were just some things that he said that I, like looking back on it now, I could put my finger on it and go, like, there it was. It was right there. But I'm, you know, I was, I'm not there. I'm not walking with this guy. I don't, I don't see it. I wasn't there. And they were, of course, in that same kind of boat where they're going like, man, we, you know, same thing. There were things that he said. There were things that were just kind of like just slightly off that we just couldn't put our finger on and, and necessarily just didn't want to step into. And then it snowballed into this gigantic thing. The picture of this is ultimately relational um, restoration it's the desire of him saying go to them in private show them i don't know if you know but this is wrong right this is me coming to you with the scripture and saying let me teach you about what the bible says about pride let let me let me instruct you in this thing about lust let me let me step into this about greed with you because i see some things that are just not good right and this is not a holier than thou or beating them up kind of thing. This is us literally coming to them in love and saying, I don't, I'm assuming you don't know this. And the picture of this is even not just a one-time thing, but a, a regularity that there is this interchange of life that is going on in that. And it says, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. What an incredible thing to have brothers living in unity, to have family living in unity. Again, all the parents that are here that have had children that didn't get along with each other, you know that it's not cool when the kids don't get along, right? And it's not cool for our Heavenly Father when He sees His kids not getting along. But when there is unity together, when we have won our brother back, there is correction, there is discipleship, there is discipline. And it's good. It's so good. And it doesn't have to blow up to everybody else. It just works in this nature of just, let me step, we're going to do life with each other. Uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, the issue of accountability was a big thing within the evangelical church. There was lots of you know, accountability partners and accountability groups and the way in which we, uh, we you know, stepped into people's lives. I think the challenge with that was that uh, we made this assumption that, uh, that uh, accountability was basically, uh, hey, Jim, you're going to keep me accountable. And what that means is if I fall, it's your fault because you didn't ask me how I was doing, right? It's me throwing ultimately the burden of my own sin on their life. And the idea of accountability ultimately is saying, I am making myself accountable. I'm st I'm, when I'm struggling, I'm going to call you in this. If I know that there's an area of weakness in my life, I'm going to step into that and make it known to somebody else to help them help me carry my carry that burden, help me correct that out. Because the ultimate desire is that I want to win my my church family. I, I want us to be together in this. But of course, we know that's not always the case, right? That's not always the way that it works. Sometimes when you step into somebody's life and you poke at a sin. Uh, it explodes in anger. 
What right do you have to call this sin? How dare you uh, accuse me of that? How, how, you know, and all these kind of things as it steps into. And this is why he makes the statement of saying, but if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. This is me stepping into that relationship and saying, listen, if you're not going to believe me, just me, let me bring some others that you know love you. They're walking with you. And I've informed them of what I've seen in this. I've informed them of the conversations that we've had. They've been brought abreast of everything that's going on with this. And now they're going to step into this in a, this is like a, a biblical intervention, right? You know, anybody that's ever uh, struggled with uh, substance abuse or alcohol abuse or whatever, and that you get a group of loving people that finally get around them and say, enough, we're stepping in on this. And we're saying, uh, we're, we're done enabling, we're done allowing this to take place. We're telling you that this is an issue. This is what this is. And he says, ultimately, we ought to be walking in such a way where there are other people, more than just this one-to-one kind of relationship, but there are other people within uh, our sphere that have enough trust, enough life, uh, enough uh, relational capital invested in each other that they can step into that role and say, this is not good. This is not biblical. This is not right. This is leading to death. And so that hopefully they can go, Okay, well, I, you know, I, I just didn't agree with you just because, you know, there's things about you that I don't like. And so I wasn't going to agree with you, but I, I can't deny it. And the fact that these, you know, these are others that love, I know that love me and I know that love Jesus. And I know that they're well versed in the scriptures. And so they're speaking this truth in. And the truth is, sometimes they won't listen to that. One to one, three to one, all to one. He says, if he, refuse, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And this is the point uh, that the author of that paper I was writing back, he, he made this point. Is this, was his, this was his place of church membership. He says, look, if, it's just a, if we're just members of the church of Jesus, what do we do? Do I go stand on the street corner in Jerusalem and say, hey, everybody that's a follower of Jesus, we got a sinner over here and they need some churching, right? No, no, no. It's literally saying everybody that is in relation, covenant relationship with this individual, everybody that is a part of the ecclesia, the called out ones of this fellowship, we're, I'm now bringing this issue before all of you because you may not know it. So that we can bring this up and say, do we agree what the scriptures say about this? That this is sin, that this is wrong, that this is unbiblical. And the rest of the congregation can either say yes and amen, or they can say, what in the world are you guys talking about? That has nothing to do with Scripture, right? Because the goal of the church is to be united as the church. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And then if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There is a vast difference of tone between if your brother sins and let them be to you as one that is not a part of the fellowship. It is a vastly different thing. And it is a hard thing. It's not a comfortable thing. It's not a comfortable thing for those that are making that decision to say they are no longer with us. And that is also intentional. Now, we would say, 
this. Who was it that said Matthew 18? Who was it that was speaking in Matthew 18? Jesus is a Sunday school answer. If your Bible has red letters, it would tell you that, right? It was Jesus that said that. How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? With love, right? But he also acknowledged this fact that they weren't in the family until they came in faith, belief, and repentance. See, it's this incredible thing of saying, uh, is it us saying, no, 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 we have nothing to do with you, we kick you out and that kind of thing. It's saying, no, I still have a relationship with you, but I cannot not acknowledge that things are not right. As we say all the time, it's this picture of the, the, uh, the cancer surgeon that's uh, coming to the patient and he has positive test results. They have cancer. And the unloving thing to do is to treat it as though there's nothing wrong. If he comes in and says, oh man, if I tell them that they're going to have cancer, they're going to have a terrible day. They're probably going to cry. And I would hate to do that to them. Right? Nobody likes making anybody cry. So I'll just tell them everything was great and everything's wonderful and we'll, I'll see you at your next checkup. The most hateful, unloving thing they could possibly do. And yet, in our present day culture and the, the Christian world, that's how we treat this. We don't think sin is as bad as God thinks it is. All of us, there, there are sins that all of us can point to that we go... Wicked needs to die and go to hell, right? One of the main sins right now that the Taliban is doing as they are going from city to city is as a prize under Islamic law, they can capture young women for themselves and they can make a choice. They can either take them in as a wife for themselves or they can sell them into human trafficking. That's happening right now. Right now, this is not ancient history, this is happening right now. And everybody in the world, hopefully, except for the criminals, it would look at that and go, sick, needs to die and go to hell, right? All of us would say, human trafficking, uh, especially, I mean, like, there's human trafficking that's just bad, and then there's human trafficking of children that just seems more evil than we could possibly conceive. And we would all hate it with a vengeance, God feels that same hatred of a vengeance for the sins that I love and that you love. That we harbor in our heart and say, it's no big deal. And this is ultimately what this is. is it's us acknowledging with God what he has said is killing people. It's not just that, oh, you know, it's going to make your life you know, less good. It's literally killing you. So he says, I cannot not, we cannot not acknowledge that there is unconfessed, unrepentant sin. Because ultimately what this is, is the beginning of this passage, one to one, two to one, this is Christian discipleship. It's just, you know, maybe there are things in our life that are so bogged in that we need people to, uh, to disciple us and to change us and to, to confront us with. But after it goes to all to one, it changes from discipleship to evangelism. Because at the end of this, it's saying you don't need to be corrected in spiritual truths. You need to know that you're a sinner that needs a Savior. That fundamental gospel belief that is what actually gets us to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's at this point, it's saying, I'm acknowledging the fact that you don't 
believe it. And he says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Guys, that's a powerful passage of Scripture. That's a passage of Scripture that is directed to the church, saying that there are things that when we as the church, the the, the actual uh, blood-bought believers of Jesus, what we agree upon, what we bind on earth is bound in heaven. And what is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, uh, uh, anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Why? For where two or three have gathered in my name. Where they're saying, God, we're calling the trial. Because we want to take this as seriously as you do. You took it serious enough to send your son to die for that one sin. And if that's, how you, if that's the value that you placed on it, how can I put any less value on that? And he says, I am there in their midst. An incredible, incredible truth. So what does this look like for us? Well, uh, in one unfortunate and very practical sense, what this means for us is that to be a member of the church means... That in 2021, you are giving informed consent. Informed consent. Informed consent means I understand the reality that if I sin and, I, and a brother or sister comes to me and tries to correct me and I don't receive that and then two or three come to me and try to correct it and, and, they don't, and I don't receive that and then it's brought before the church and I won't correct that and then they remove me from membership that I cannot sue the church for defamation of character. Because that's the world that we live in, because people do that. That's that's part of what this means. But the more profound nature, the true biblical nature of it, is that what it means is that I have an expectation that you have my back. And you should have the expectation that I have yours. That we are coming for each other. That we are loving each other even when we are not lovable. Because the reality of, of, of the Christian life is that on the day that we got saved, our sins past, present, and future, forgiven. But we were still knuckleheads. I don't know if, you, I don't know if you've noticed that about your own spiritual life. That there were still things that you grow in. There's still sins that all of a sudden, you know, you've been a believer 20, 30 years, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit begins to reveal these things, and you're like, man, I didn't know. I didn't know that that was there so much. And have people around us that are not there to point their finger at us in an accusatory play, but are coming to us with open hands pleading, don't do this. Don't do this. I remember a story um, from a training series I did a number of years back called the Peacemaker Series. It was talking about biblical reconciliation and what does that look like. And it described the story of a, of a, a church in, uh, it was actually in South Carolina where the church was. And told the story basically that there was a, a, a doctor uh, that was a member of the church, married with a couple of kids. And uh, at, his, uh, at his office, he employed a nurse that was married, had no kids, and they were both members of the church. And as time went on and closeness of working together went on, 
they, uh, their friendly banter in the office changed from friendly banter to romantic banter, which transitioned into physical banter, which transitioned into uh, a full-on affair. And this went on for some time undetected by uh, either their spouses uh, or the people in the church. And then all of a sudden something came out and it all blew up. And of course these were leading people in the, in the nature of that church. And it came up and the, uh, they were confronted with their sin and they said, no, we're going to leave our spouses. We're moving in with each other. This is, you know, this is, we, don't, we never really loved them. We really love each other. Who wants to squish our love kind of a thing? And, and they moved off. And the church went through this process of trying to reconcile them, trying to bring them back in. And they wouldn't do that. Do that and so they removed them from membership. Of course, the, uh, the husband of the nurse uh, and the wife of the doctor and his kids were all still a part of the church and deeply grieved and deep, deeply hurting. And after the church actually made the decision that they are being removed from the membership roles, uh, the, somebody in the church raised their hand and said, so he's my, my primary care physician. Do, do I need to, according to this, do I need to find a different physician? Do I need to go somewhere else and make this, you know, big, and everybody was, and a bunch of people were like, yeah, no, that's, he's, he, you know, that's who we go see for our stuff. That's who I get my prescriptions through. And the, uh, the elders of that church were wise enough to not answer the question immediately. Do you know that a lot of times when somebody asks you a hard question, the best thing to do is to not answer right then, to just stop and pray and say, I don't know, let me ask God. Right. And the following week, they held a special meeting for that specific thing. And this is the official answer of that elder board to that church. They said, schedule extra appointments. And the word of that physician was that he began to dread showing up to work. Because every day he would get his roster and he would see church member, church member, church member, church member, church member. And all of them would say the same thing. Hey, I saw your wife at the grocery store the other day and we had your kids in, in uh, you know, Sunday school. And man, they love you and they, they want you back and, and so do we. Can you re-up my prescription? Hey man, you know, I just want you to know we love you and we're praying for you. Uh, you appreciate the good care that you give me as a physician. Um, Man, you need to get your marriage right. And day after day after day, it broke. And he broke it off with the, the nurse, was reconciled to his wife, went through counseling, was restored into the member of the church. The, the nurse apparently uh, took a significant more time. She was more angry. Uh, she, she didn't like everything that was going on. And finally, the same thing ultimately pushed her to that place. And she came and sought reconciliation with her husband, with the uh, elders walking around them in that. Uh, and she was brought before the church, the same as the, the man had been later on. She was brought before the church, and they, the elders gathered around, prayed for her, uh, informed the church that she had been reinstated in membership. And then they said this. They said, uh, we are acknowledging the fact that she has come in repentance and belief in what it is that Jesus has done. Uh, if Jesus is willing to forgive her, so are we. She's been reconciled to the church. And if we hear anybody gossiping about her or him or any of the situation, we will begin church discipline on you. And I thought, what an incredible picture of love. To say, I love you enough to not let you just keep, go, to, to not pretend like everything's okay. 
We've had this in our church, in Galena Bible Church. And we have seen restoration in some cases, and others we've seen them continue off. Wanting nothing to do with this message that we give. But this is membership. A finger is not removed from the body without pain and loss, without scarring. The reality for us as a church body is that we can lose members in one of two ways. We can lose members like a body gives a kidney and transplant to another body, right? Organ transplants, you know, liver, lung, kidney, bone marrow, skin grafts, all of those things are medical practices that help somebody else. But they are very scarring and loss-oriented for the one giving them, right? That's the way that that works. I, we make no... Uh, you know, we have no illusion of the fact that this congregation, for the most part, at some point in time, will go somewhere else. will be a part of another body. And our prayer is that because of the influence that we've had in your life, that it would be us giving a healthy part of our body to another. Leaving a scar, causing pain, uh, having loss on our own part because we don't like doing that. But we know that it is for the good of another. That's one way we can lose members. The other way is the way that Will lost his thumb. You can have it mashed off. It's scarring. It's unusable. It's pointless. It, it, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, it's, not, it's not a pleasant experience. To have any type of uh, wounding on yourself that is in such a way where, it, where what is lost is unusable past that. That's not the way that we want to lose people in our church. We, we want to be a body that is healthy together, every, every piece doing what it was made to do within the body. And when it is your time to go, that it would be a blessing to another body, that it would be enriching to another that we would be sending off disciplined disciples. Members who love Jesus and love their brothers and sisters with a reckless passion. The kind of passion that Jesus loved you with. That he cared enough about you to not just look at you and say, well, yeah, that's kind of messed up, but I don't want to make them feel bad. Jesus is willing to make us feel bad. That's called conviction. And it is one of his highest forms of love. That he loved me enough to tell me that I was a sinner and that I needed Jesus. And he loves you that same way. We ought to love each other the same way. That's what it means to do church discipline. It's, it's not a us holier than thou, though the world looks at it and that may be their perspective. But the reality of it is it's the same kind of love that Jesus loved us, that brought us into the church, is what we long to love each other with, keeping each other 
in full assurance of faith. Why? Because our desire is that if they listen to you, that you've won your brother. That you've won your brother. Let's pray. God, we're so incredibly thankful for your word. We're thankful that the, uh, the message that is, has been given to us uh, was, was received by us. Lord, I pray that that is true of everybody that's here, that as we hear this truth that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we wouldn't just cognitively file that away as something that we know, but that it would be true of us. It would be changed by this gospel. And that we would love each other as you have loved us. Not in a judgmental way, but in a way that is spurring one another on towards love and good works. That together we are helping each other see Jesus better. And to be conformed into his image. Help us to be this kind of a church, God. Help us to be the kind of church that lives life so closely with each other that we do do see those things. And God, help us uh, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit that when we see things that kind of raise the hackles on our neck to say, tell me more about that and, and step into those things in each other's lives. Because we desire, Lord, to not be caught off guard by the, the enemy's schemes. Satan lies and he steals and he kills. And so, God, as we come to your table now, help us to remember that we, we still, no matter how long we've been a follower of Jesus, we still need grace. The Lord's table is a reminder of that of us, that it was Jesus' broken body and your shed blood, Jesus, that atoned for our sins. And we needed that just as much on the day that we got saved as we need it today. Your grace poured out for us in Jesus on the cross. Help us to remember that as we walk in humility with each other, loving each other, spurring each other on. Help us to remember... uh, your grace together this morning. We love you. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.